One size fits all seemed like a good idea for clothes. Nice dress. Uh, it's a it's a T-shirt. Until you tried it on. Same goes for your health care. That's why United Healthcare offers a variety of flexible, budget-friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. So whether you're between jobs, coming off a parent's plan, or even missed open enrollment, you can find the plan that fits you best. Find out more about United Healthcare coverage at uh1.com. That's uh1.com. Even on a budget, quality is non-negotiable. That's why Quince is the place to score high-end essentials at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Get your hands on buttery soft cashmere sweaters from just 60 bucks, Italian leather jackets, and so much more. And the best part about Quince, they exclusively partner with factories committed to safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Elevate your style without the elevated price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns. Hello everyone and welcome to Histories of the Unexpected, the show in which we demonstrate that everything, simply everything you can possibly think of, has its own history, like oranges, pigeons and patriotism. Oh, I think we should do the history of oranges. Actually, we've done the history of oranges already, Sam, haven't we? But what we will be doing is following the links in our minds as we come across them, explaining how those histories link together in unexpected ways. Who knew, for example, who knew that the history of Windows is in fact all about the outbreak of the Thirty Years' War. It's also all about the Reformation and many other things. Or who knew that the history of Revenge is in fact all about the Wars of the Roses and the Battle of St Albans. Uh, the man who will help pilot us through this wonderful historical world is one of the country's leading professors of history. It's James Daybell. Hi, James. Hello, Sam. And the man who will help me co-pilot this brilliant episode is the famous historical adventurer himself, Dr Sam Willis. Hi, Sam. Hello, everyone. This is another episode of our special homeschooling series for kids. And in each episode, we take a subject that I bet you don't think has a history. And today we're doing the history of divorce. Which, of course... <laughs> is all about Henry VIII, the King's Great Matter and the break with Rome. But before we reveal that connection, Sam, we need to think about brainstorming. So we need to think more broadly about the history of divorce. Now, the history of divorce starts really in 1857 in Britain with the Matrimonial Causes Act, which allowed ordinary people to divorce. And before then... Divorce was something that had to be granted by an act of parliament and it was largely all about men. So women couldn't go to parliament and do that. And it was an enormous expense. And there are these very high profile cases uh, during this during this period. One of the most extraordinary cases that I've come across in recent years was introduced to me very soon after Christmas, with a brilliant series on TV, on BBC, called A Very British Scandal. Now, check this out on BBC iPlayer. But it is based on the notorious divorce of the Duke and Duchess of Argyle during the 1960s. Now, Margaret Campbell, who became Duchess of Argyle, was something of a celebrity of her time. She was super famous, had dated all sorts of famous men and very, very wealthy men. Uh, she had a very sort of high-profile uh, marriage, was extremely wealthy, and then married married 
the Duke of Argyle, who I must admit was was somebody who a bit of a scoundrel uh, in this. He was the um, he was chief of his clan. He was hereditary master of the royal household in Scotland, but also he'd had a really awful time during the war. He'd been prisoner of war in Germany. He'd become addicted to drink, to gambling, to drugs, um, and he behaves monstrously to his wife and he seems to have had a series of relationships with women where he has tried to marry them for their money and then moved them on so then divorced them and what happens with this is his wife uh, Margaret gets caught in a very sort of compromising uh, situation. There's a particular photograph of her with another, what looks like another man, although you can't see his head. This then goes to court, is utterly scandalous, and she is absolutely vilified uh, by the press uh, during this during this time. Um, and you know, described as a as a nymphomaniac, and it is one of the most high profile divorce cases of the 1960s. So there we are, Sam. That's that's my sort of potted history of divorce. Yeah, well, interesting, isn't it? You talk about the 1857 Matrimonial Causes Act, and it's actually under this new law that women who wanted divorce on the grounds of adultery not only had to prove that their husbands had been unfaithful, very difficult indeed, but they also also. <laughs> It's not just adultery. They have to prove additional faults as well, which included cruelty, rape and incest. Um, and it didn't really change until the 1930s, 1937. And then um, you have uh, grounds for divorce change. It includes drunkenness, insanity, desertion, really interesting, desertion from the armed forces. Um, but the major changes happened in the 1960s. Uh, James, you were talking about that briefly there. It allows couples to divorce after they've been separated for two years. Um, I immediately thought about Horatio Nelson, James, because we're going to be talking about Henry VIII and um, how he struggled to get his divorce. But one of the most interesting figures who didn't actually get a divorce is Horatio Nelson. And it makes you, uh, kind of opens up this whole idea of why you would be motivated for a divorce in the public if you're worried about public shaming um, you're worried about the expenses of it. So Horatio Nelson, the great naval officer, won the Battle of Trafalgar. Very interesting. He was actually married to Francis Nelson. He had a wife and it was after his great victory at the Battle of the Nile in 1798. He started having a very, very public extramarital affair with Emma, uh, Lady Hamilton, a striking beauty. She was uh, very well known and she was also the wife of one of his closest friends, Sir William Hamilton. Now, I think one of the really interesting things about this is how the entire episode is interpreted and how those interpretations change. So if you go back a few years, most of the interpretations would paint Francis Nelson, um, so Nelson's actual wife, as, as being the one responsible for the breakdown of the marriage, um, that she was incompatible with him, that she was cold, that she was whining, that she complained all the time. Um, but there's been a huge change in that with more recent biographies. And now Fanny Nelson, so Nelson's actual wife, is is presented as being someone who was well-loved, who is well-respected, um, increasingly viewed as the victim of Nelson and Emma Hamilton's affair. And Nelson was certainly uh, pretty unpleasant. That they, they separated um, after he started having the affair. He did treat her generously. He actually allocated to her half of his income. But when she tried to get back to reconcile, he was very cruel in 
indeed. And the last letter she sent was actually returned straight to her with a very blunt response saying, opened by mistake by Lord Nelson, but not read. And they never met again. Um, so I just really thought that was interesting, James, because um, divorce obviously involves the breakdown of relationships. So the way that historians look at it uh, is really interesting. And you... Uh, you have to be very careful you're not being coloured by one person's perspective. It's um, fertile ground for actually writing history and also fertile ground for um, different interpretations of the events to appear, which is why I think it is um, such, such great, great historical material. But today, James, we're going to be talking about Henry VIII and the King's Great Matter. Um, Henry VIII, King of England, uh, he's married to uh, Catherine of Aragon. He's been married to her since 1509. And by 1527, he's actually been married to her for a very long time, for 18 years. One of the problems that Henry's facing now is that he really wants to have a son. He does have a daughter. He has Mary, who goes on to become Mary I in the future. But he wants a son. And his, his real kind of commitment to this is you have to think about this in terms of the recent history. You've got to bear in mind that the Wars of the Roses, now we've just done a little podcast on that explaining how revenge was so important in the Wars of the Roses. The Wars of the Roses are still within living memory and Henry wants to secure his line of succession and the most, the easiest, the way he's most confident of being able to do that is to have a son. So he wants to have a son. At the same time, he's fallen in love with one of Catherine's ladies-in-waiting called Anne Boleyn. And she's much younger than Henry. We don't know exactly when Anne was born, but he's been um, kind of bewitched, probably the wrong word, James, I'm not sure. Um, uh, uh, in, infatuated. Entranced. Infatuated, entranced, yes. Yeah, in, infatuated with Anne. Um, now, Henry's got to find a way of getting out of this. And he settles on a bit of his own history and Catherine's, uh, Catherine's history. Because Catherine had actually been married to Henry's brother, Arthur, uh, before she married Henry VIII himself. Um, Arthur died not very long after the marriage. Now, there's a passage in the Bible saying that if a man marries his brother's wife, they will be childless. And Henry settles on this as a, as a, a way of kind of focusing his concern and also as a way of um, as, a, as, a, as leverage to actually be able to divorce Catherine. So we're in the situation. He wants to divorce Catherine. He wants to get together with Anne and he's got to find a way of doing it. Some kind of legal argument. Now, Catherine claims that she was a virgin when she married Henry VIII, that her marriage with Arthur, Henry's brother, had never actually been consummated. Basically, they'd never had sex, which means, as far as she was concerned, that her marriage with Henry VIII was absolutely fine. Henry doesn't let that argument phase him. He becomes convinced, or at least he argues this, that the marriage in the eyes of God was wrong and therefore had no legal standing. The problem he's got, though, is that he needs to convince the Pope to grant him a divorce. So Henry got married within the Catholic Church and the Pope is the only one who can grant him a divorce. So you end up with this fascinating situation of conflict and tension between England and the king. Um, but not just between one country and another country, it's between one country and an entire religion. So you've got this conflict between Henry, the King of England, and the entirety of the Catholic Church, with Catholic Europe and its head, the Pope. 
Um, Catherine is defiant. She refused to be brushed aside. There's some attempts to get her sent to a nunnery. She refuses to do that. She still claims she's Henry's wife. Henry tries to send a representative, um, his secretary, a guy called William Knight, tries to get him sent to the Pope to negotiate on his behalf, but it doesn't work. Uh, Thomas Wolsey, the Lord Chancellor, he then does his best uh, by convening an ecclesiastical court in England with both Henry and Catherine present. But that doesn't work and the Pope won't let anything happen um, in England or, in fact, at all. Wolsey gets sacked. Henry kind of decides to take things into his own hands. Catherine is banished and Anne Boleyn is given her rooms and Henry soon marries her in a secret ceremony. A lot can happen in the next three years. Like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare tri-term medical plans are available for these changing times. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer budget-friendly, flexible coverage for people who are in between jobs or missed open enrollment. The plans last nearly three years in some states, with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. So for whatever tomorrow brings, United Healthcare tri-term medical plans may be for you. Learn more at UH1.com. Jewelry isn't a gift you give just once. It's a way to remind your loved one of a beautiful moment every time they see it. Blue Nile can help you find the gift that says how you feel and says it beautifully with expert guidance and a wide assortment of jewelry of the highest quality at the best price. Go to BlueNile.com and experience the convenience of shopping Blue Nile, the original online jeweler since 1999. That's BlueNile.com to find the perfect jewelry gift for any occasion. BlueNile.com. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with Plush Care. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at PlushCare.com slash weight loss. That's PlushCare.com slash weight loss. PlushCare.com slash weight loss. Yes, that's brilliant, Sam. And I think the thing the thing that's really interesting here and what I want to go and talk about now is the break with Rome. So it's how Henry's infatuation with Anne Boleyn, his desire for a son, and you know the fact that Catherine of Aragon um, only gave him a daughter led to the first steps of the Reformation in the in England, the establishment of the English Church and the severance of relations with with the Church and Rome and the Pope. And what happens is this great matter of Henry VIII sort of really drags on and he becomes infatuated with Anne Boleyn. He, um, he gets rid of Wolsey, as you've already said. Wolsey is, is accused of treason, is put in is locked up, put in the tower and basically dies just before he sort of reaches uh, a trial. Um, but now what happens is that there are anti-clericals, so people who are anti the church or anti the Catholic church surround Henry and Anne Boleyn really is 
right in the vanguard of this. She's she sees the power of these early reformers, people like William Tyndale, who uh, translated the Bible into English, and through her, many of these um, people are able to get their ideas before Henry VIII. Now, one of two of the most important figures uh, are Thomas Cromwell and Thomas. Cranmer, uh, who are two men, important men, who become influential, sit on the council, they're appointed to the council, and they share with Henry their views, which is which is opposed to the Roman Catholic Church. Now, they're great churchmen themselves. Um, Thomas Cranmer uh, became Archbishop of Canterbury, so a very sort of key person. He'd actually got married uh, in secret. He'd been to Luther's Germany. He was influenced by his his teachings, by his doctrinal views, and this was a time when it was forbidden for priests in England to marry. Uh, the second person is Thomas Cromwell, uh, who is a really skillful lawyer, uh, somebody who who whose career was tied to the Boleyns, but also he was somebody who was uh, trusted by Wolsey. So he, you know, he was very sort of, um, very sort of pivotal in in Wolsey's um, career, um, supporting him. So he gets a lot of experience by working alongside him, and then he moves into effectively what was Wolsey's position, and also he gets the ear of the monarch. And one of the things that he persuades Henry is that he is going to be able, and I quote, to make him the richest prince in Christendom. And the, what the argument that he's making is that the church is incredibly powerful, incredibly rich. If you look at what's happened on the continent, monasteries have been closed down by German Lutheran princes. Their property has been confiscated and they've become very, very wealthy. This is dangled before Henry, uh, who, of course, is really attracted to this idea of having you know, full power. And, and the idea is that Henry would set up establish a Church of England of which he would be head and therefore replace the Pope. Now matters come to a head in 1532 and as as you said Sam, uh, Anne and Henry are becoming very close, she begins to sleep with him and of course becomes pregnant and then the issue becomes about having a legitimate child. So Henry marries her in secret in February 1533 and two months later, Cranmer, the Archbishop of Canterbury, declares that Henry's marriage to Catherine is null and void, that in fact it had never happened. And Catherine of Aragon is basically told she was never Henry's wife uh, and really living in a sinful relationship with him, that her daughter, Mary, who becomes goes on to be Mary I, Mary Tudor, um, Queen of England, uh, is in fact declared illegitimate and a bastard in the eyes of the church. And then um, Anne continues sort of... You know, she's married to, to Henry. Um, she's crowned Queen of England in June 1533. And just imagine Catherine having to endure, you know, this this going on before her when, you know, she sees herself as legitimately married to uh, Henry VIII. Um, what happens then is Princess Elizabeth is born, uh, which actually is quite a disappointment for Henry um, because he actually wanted a boy to take over from him. 
Um, but what's interesting is the way in which Thomas Cromwell is able to manipulate Parliament during this period, to turn... Um, he really sort of helps Henry out here. And we have something called the Reformation Parliament and a series of acts that basically end up severing England's link with Rome, eroding the authority of the Pope over the Church of England and establishing Henry VIII as supreme head of the Church of England. There is a succession act in 1534, so the Act of Succession, whereby nobles, monks, priests, etc., all had to swear an oath of allegiance that agreed that um, that that basically Anne and her descendants should be the rightful queen and heirs to inherit the throne. And if anyone denied that, it was treason and it would be punishable by death. And what's fascinating is the way in which we see the Henrician Reformation evolving from this. And it's really two it's really in two parts. So there's a political revolution in the government of the church, which basically sees an autonomous English church with Henry VIII as it at its head. And then there is a religious reformation. So there's a reformation from above and then a reformation from below, which developed much more slowly whilst Henry was alive. So those kind of reformist ideas start taking start taking root with official sanction. And if you think about it, Henry and Cromwell are working together at the same time, but really they're coming at Reformation from two different conceptual spaces. So Henry basically wants a break with Rome. He wants this because he wants obedience to him as king. He's actually quite conservative in terms of his religious theology. Whereas Cromwell, on the other side, wants the break with Rome, but is an evangelical. So he is a reformer and he is against the Pope because he sees Catholicism as superstitious and he wants that to be uprooted and removed. And we have a Reformation Parliament that sits between 1529 and 1536. And we see a range of anti-clerical and anti-papal legislation put through. So, for example, 1531, the Convocation, the Assembly of the Clergy, threatened to lay the entire church under a ban of outlawry for having violated the statue of Primanuri in recognising Wolsey's legatine powers, so him as a, a papal legate. So this is trying to erode the influence of the of the of the papacy. There's then a pardon of the clergy. In 1532, there's an act in conditional restraint of annates, which ended payments to Rome. There's an act of dispensations in 1534, which placed appointment of bishops in the king's hands rather than that of the Pope. So you can see that then there are all these attempts to try and remove papal power. We then have the Succession Act in 1534, which I've already spoken about, which make it treason to deny the king's title or to slander his marriage to Anne. And then there is the Act of Supremacy in 1534. And I'm just going to read you a little extract from this. This is basically what justifies that the king 
is rightly the supreme head of the Church of England. Albeit the King's Majesty justly and rightly is and oweth to be the supreme head of the Church of England and so is recognised by the clergy of this realm in their convocations, yet nevertheless for corroboration and confirmation thereof and for increase of virtue in Christ's religion within this realm and to repress and extirp all errors, heresies and other enormities and abuses heretofore used in the same be it enacted by authority of this present Parliament that the King, our Sovereign Lord, his heirs and successors, kings of this realm, shall be taken, accepted and reputed the only supreme head in earth of the Church of England, and shall have and enjoy annexed and united to the imperial crown of this realm as well the title and style thereof as all honours, dignities, preeminences, jurisdictions, privileges, authorities, immunities, profits and commodities to the said dignity of the supreme head of the same church belonging and appertaining, and that our said sovereign lord, his heirs and successors, kings of this realm, shall have full power and authority from time to time to visit, repress, redress, reform, order, correct, restrain and amend all such errors, heresies, abuses, offences, contempts and enormities, whatsoever they be, which by any manner spiritual authority or jurisdiction ought or may lawfully be reformed, repressed, ordered, redressed, corrected, restrained or amended, most to the pleasure of Almighty God, the increase of virtue in Christ's religion and for the conservation of the peace, unity and tranquillity of this realm. Any usage, custom, foreign laws, foreign authority, prescription or any other thing or things to the contrary thereof, notwithstanding. Goodness me, there is a justification of <laughs> royal supremacy yeah. if ever I saw one, Sam Willis. <laughs> I love that. Fantastic. Excellent. And we have some we have some some questions, don't we? We do, absolutely. I'll start. We yes, start. excellent. What was the name of Henry VIII's brother? In what year did Cardinal Wolsey fall from power? Hmm. Number three. How long had Henry been married to Catherine of Aragon before he divorced her? Number four. Who were the two chief architects of the separation from Rome? Who were those two members of the council and what role did they play? Number five, uh, who did Henry need to grant the divorce? And lastly, number six, what was the importance of the Act of Supremacy and in what year was it passed through the Reformation Parliament? Mm, all fascinating stuff. And do we have a task? James? We do have a task. This is a very nerdy task. What I'd like you to do is... <laughs> I trotted through the Reformation Parliament there. And I think the Reformation Parliament is so key for understanding this break with Rome. And what I would like you to do is to make a list of all the main acts that were put through the Reformation Parliament and what was their importance. So I want, I want their titles, their year and their importance, what they did. And I think if you've got that as a sort of framework... That will then give you the facts, the bones that you can then think about your main arguments for the Reformation and the severance with Rome. 
Great, and it's, it's it's such a wonderful topic to get your teeth stuck into, and I think this is a tremendous place to start. Guys, I hope you have enjoyed our little history of divorce there. We've got more coming your way soon. Um, World War One, I, I think we're going to be doing, James, is that right? We certainly are. World War One on the home front, Sam. Mm, I'm going to think of a theme for that and look forward to recording that very soon. And we've got some full episodes coming your way as well. Um, I do know that we are going to be recording some interesting stuff just this afternoon, James. We certainly are, Sam. We're going to do a special one for Valentine's Day on the colour red. (laughs) My love is like a red, red red rose. That may, Robbie Burns may come up, I imagine. Yes, and fleas. We're doing the history of the, the fleas. history of fleas. fleas. I'm not sure, but little, 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 uh, uh, no seams that, that, that suck your blood. Not very good. Um, that's all coming. Guys, do please follow us on social media. Keep in touch. I'm at Dr. Sam Willis. You can find me on Twitter and Instagram. And if you're interested in the history of the sea, do please listen to my other podcast, the Mariner's Mirror podcast. And you can follow me on social media on Twitter at James Daybell. You can follow the podcast at Unexpected Pod. We're on Instagram. We're on Facebook. So check us out there check out our website historiesoftheunexpected.com and also if you would like to be a patron head over to patreon.com and anything that you can do to support how we are trying to change the way in which people think about the past would be very welcome indeed meanwhile absolutely would be well and enjoy your history (laughs) thanks all for listening guys cheerio bye Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no-brainers. And if you have a lot of mailing to do, Stamps.com is the ultimate no-brainer. It streamlines your processes to make your business more efficient, which makes you less busy. Mail checks, invoices, legal documents, and everything you need to keep your business running with Stamps.com. Seamlessly connect with every major marketplace and shopping cart. Schedule package pickups and see your cheapest and fastest shipping options from different carriers. With rates up to 89% off USPS and UPS rates. And with the Stamps.com mobile app, you can take care of mailing and shipping wherever you are. Make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. Sign up with code PROGRAM for a 4-week trial, plus free postage and a free digital scale. No long-term commitments or contracts. That's stamps.com. Code program.